Hello world, it's your boy Pat, coming back at you with the next episode of the Hollow Down podcast series. Want to once again welcome you aboard. Thank you for providing me a little bit of your time today, this week, to listen in to my rambles and shambles about odd interesting, entertaining, and curious things around the world, country, various entertainment, uh, pretty much a little bit of everything. This is the first time that you've come across this podcast. I want to welcome you aboard. This is the Hollow Down Podcast. Every once in a while, maybe uh, every month or so, that seems to be the current trend, uh, one of the podcasts will also end up recorded on the YouTube channel with the same name, youtube.com slash the hollow down. And if you want to reach out, you can do so by sending an email directly to the hollow down at gmail.com or depending on which of the multiple platforms this podcast is aired on. You may be able to send a direct message or question that way. So today, episode 11, title is Forbes and the Pope. few topics to discuss today. I will be very blunt and upfront about this one. This, depending on your stance in various things, this may be seen as questionable or controversial to you. But I will tell you, I will be including no personal, whether subjective or objective, uh, influence into what I tell you. I will be telling it to you simply as documented, coming from an article in the Forbes magazine. So this is nothing that's going to be a personal opinion. It is simply relaying information as is currently known to us. I will go ahead and let you know. It is a little windy outside. It is a little chilly outside. So of course I'm smoking a cigar. Um, not gonna really talk about that today. Uh, I am smoking a quorum. It's uh, more of a budget stick. Uh, Churchill in this case. It's one I usually keep around. I keep a few budget sticks around as well that I get full packs of just to rotate in the mix. Sometime down the line, I will actually introduce to you some information and, and data on this stick. Uh, but we're not going to do that today. For those of you who may be listening for the first time, this is more of what I call a cigar lounge style conversation. The type that you would run into if you went to a local cigar lounge or a group of buddies. Set around some coffee or some bourbon or some scotch, sit around the fire, 
have a conversation about things going on or things that intrigue you. Hence is my inspiration and my purpose for this podcast. So sometimes I will talk about the cigar, sometimes I won't. Sometimes I'll just ramble, just like I'm doing now. But either way, the idea is to provide to you some information about things going on, things I have discovered, things I have learned about, and sometimes just some odd quirks that I run across. Never really know what's going to come out in the episode. Just have to pay attention to it every week and see where it takes us. Now, let's jump into today's topics. Like I said, episode 11, we are titled Forbes and the Pope. First part of this is going to be talking about a matter that's been going on in the Vatican. Forbes in the title because most of my information coming out of the Forbes magazine and we're also going to relay some information about some updates on the Forbes 400, the uh, new uh, method of riches in the country, and talk about something there. And it all kind of plays into each other because pretty much everything in this episode is discussing money, discussing uh, rich people in the world, people in high places when it comes to funding. Um, so we'll talk about the updated Forbes 400, um, <laughs> the new meaning to what rich is for Americans, where that benchmark is now, how the Vatican riches may be in a little bit of a trouble, how some people think smart to keep it, and just in general making changes to riches as we've known them in the past. So what's up with the Pope and the Vatican, right? So Pope Francis is your current Pope. Um, obviously been there for several years, so um, most people, Catholic or not, usually uh, at least know the name. And if you don't, it's Pope Francis. So um, at the time of this recording, um, as most of you listening know, I do record a little bit early give myself some ample proper editing and uploading posting time to the platforms however um, this information was pertinent in the October November time frame um, the trial that I'm going to be referencing restarted I believe on October 5th but at the time of this recording um, no further information but this is something that's been going on for a couple of years as far as investigative purposes. So may not have anything to follow up with just yet. That will be a matter of time there. But the reason I bring it up is Vatican has unfortunately been um, targeted or mentioned for scandals and fraudulent laundering in the past um, not necessarily doesn't mean that it's true but it's been targeted just like many high churches of other denominations are when people are donating money and the church is raising money um, sometimes it's an issue of concern and the Vatican is no different 
basically what is happening is the Pope is or has been leading a investigation into a potentially scandalous situation. And the reason Forbes is mentioning this is because it's such a big high profile deal in the world of the rich, the world of the money. But unfortunately it may end up backfiring on the Pope. That's just a matter of determining what comes out. And I'll give you some information based on this scenario. Basically the biggest financial criminal trial in the history of the Catholic Church um, restarted October 5th in the Vatican Museums. Pope's idea is to hold this trial to prove that no one's above the law, even the church. He's already been doing a two-year investigation. The indictment and charges that he has included amass almost 500 pages worth of documentation. And the bulk of the charges originally focus on one of the cardinals that was believed to be once untouchable because of his position. I'm in no place to say, as with any of this information that I'm giving you, I'm in no place to say whether any of this is true or, or otherwise. Simply all we have is the information that I'm giving you. Uh, Vatican is pretty much seeing this as the trial of the century to potentially clear up some issues. So you do have allegations leading to fraud scandal and even nepotism basically targeting individuals and groups that have been dealing with favoritism with a lack of due process in the way certain funds and ventures were handled and it all stemmed off of originated off of one particular situation that was able to skyrocket this whole process. Now I'll get to the explanation in a minute, but I'd mentioned a moment ago that there's potential for this to backfire against the Pope himself, right? Now why on earth would I say something like that if the Pope is the one leading the investigation? There's a couple new rep uh, what Forbes calls some new revelations. These are all coming from multiple sources, so it's not Forbes alone making some proclamations here. So one is there's evidence to show that the Pope received a uh, what they call a damning briefing about the Cardinal. Cardinal in question years before he was actually indicted but yet the Pope allowed him to remain in his position we'll mention that second an outside director says that a meeting with Pope Francis to warn him about certain approaching legal catastrophe was blocked by the Pope's personal secretary we'll mention that and lastly 
is based on certain situations and charges, etc., that have occurred, certain insiders in the Vatican and other groups have begun using the term, quote, friends of Francis to explain why certain Vatican officials are being prosecuted while somehow others are not. So let's explain some of these things and not in excruciating detail, but enough for you to understand what's going on here. So the basis of the starting point for this entire situation revolved around a neighborhood in Chelsea and London where an area was planned to be converted into 49 luxury apartments by the church. It was a 350 million pound investment. And yes, we are speaking pounds. We're talking in London, not US dollars. So 350 million pound investment that turned into a 100 million pound loss for the Vatican. There were also certain fixers, builders, and middlemen that are also co-defendants in this trial that each collected tens of millions in uh, compensation. So the chief defendant, Cardinal, that was previously untouchable that we mentioned, Cardinal Angelo, and I'm going to butcher this name, it's spelled B-E-C-C-I-U, just going to refer to him as Cardinal Angelo. He was the one that, until 2019, directed the Vatican's day-to-day -day management and was the only official period that did not require an appointment to meet with the Pope. They were at a high enough level together. He could walk in and talk to him as needed. So the indictment accuses Cardinal Angelo of nepotism by also funneling 825,000 pounds to his brother's charity and an additional 575,000 pounds to a businesswoman for her Slovenian-based company hired as a so-called security consultant. But it was proven that half of that money was actually spent on luxury designer goods and lavish vacations. Definitely not for security purposes. And I will sidestep here. Anybody out there that operates any nonprofit, any church, or any business in general, we all understand that not 100% of the money taken in goes towards the documented purpose of the business. You've got to have time off. You've got to have expenditures. You're going to have fuel. You're going to have travel. You're going to have vacation time. But for a nonprofit to be accused of half of that money going to luxurious items, it does raise some attention and potentially becomes an issue, especially when we're talking about churches. Now, Pope Francis retains unrestricted authority, is able to intervene in all criminal and civil, civil investigations or trials. 
ultimate authority. Vatican is its separate city-state uh, under its own control. Pope Francis did strip Cardinal Angelo of his rights as a cardinal uh, about a year ago. Previously pulled him out of his post. Pulled him out of decision-making matters for the Vatican. Tried to distance himself from the Cardinal. However, it's proving a little late because sources show that basically five years ago that he received a secret dossier that supposedly said out incontrovertible proof about the Cardinal diverting more than two million in certain church funds. However, the Pope ignored it, put it to the side, closed the case, shut the door, didn't do anything about it. And at the time, the Cardinal was able to continue overseeing the day-to-day -day operations of the Vatican. Now, in complete contrast, Pope Francis has strongly intervened in the current charges, indictments, and investigations. And with his ultimate authority, that has basically left the current defense without any recourse for contesting or rebutting evidence that has been brought up to the trials. As a result, there was a series of unprecedented raids in late 2019 on the Secretary of State's offices, referring to the Secretary of State for the Vatican. And the Supervisory and Financial Intelligence Authority, which many have heard or may have heard about the AIF, that's what the Vatican calls them. The AIF was the auditing group going against the funds and the Pope authorized their offices to be raided for information. AIF was established with the previous Pope, Pope Benedict 16th, I believe. Anyway, Pope Benedict, who created the AIF, initially issued the first law against money laundering for the Vatican. And it is appearing that now that there's a monetary fraudulent scandal, potentially, that Francis is doing everything he can to unravel Benedict's laws. Just looks bad on him. Whether that's what he's actually doing or not, time will tell. And I'm not going to make an um, assumption. That is the appearance many people are, are visualizing. Is that you finally get a pope that sets laws down and the very next one is trying to remove them just looks bad now the AIF began conducting multi-jurisdictional investigations trying to follow the money figure out where it's going figure out who's to blame and after the pope raided his own auditors things changed the auditors suspended AIF over concerns that 
the Pope's raid had then compromised confidential information. Which even if you're not someone that is involved with criminal proceedings, once you tamper with evidence, it pretty much screws up everything. Several members then resigned, not wanting to be a part of the mess. One of the directors was concerned that the AIF had then been transformed in just an empty shell. A director reached out to Cardinal Parolin, who was the Vatican's Secretary of State. However, Archbishop uh, of the Pope, basically a personal secretary, blocked it, refused to let AIF director speak to the Pope about any of this. Now, at the time, the AF director who then decided to step down after realizing that his office was becoming invaluable would not even be able to talk to the Pope about the legal issues he perceived that may come up because of what has transpired. Trying to talk to the Pope as a warning, he was refused, so he left. Several others left. And now those individuals who left are now being indicted as well, but they were only charged and indicted after their attempts to communicate with the Pope about the situation were blocked. Once again, begins to look a little, a little suspect. The Pope ended up indicting the director, sorry, the uh, former money regulator, not the director, former money regulator, um, Rene Brillhart, even though he had zero access to the money, had zero access to the funds, and Cardinal Angelo was the one that actually had to make the approval for all those transactions. Again, these indictments did not come till after the raid against his own auditors. So the case against Brillhart really looks like a personal payback, according to certain sources which is a massive problem for Pope Francis. It says here that multiple sources, all of whom requested to be kept anonymous, say that Brohart made powerful enemies among the citizens in the Vatican because he kept things by the book, which is what he was directed to do based on the creation of the AIF from Pope Benedict. Unfortunately, it begins to seem that many hated him for the laws that he enforced, which, again, looks bad towards the church, who are making it clear that they want the monetary freedom to do whatever with the funding without any, any scrutiny, and begin trying to shift the blame back onto their own regulatory forces to, to basically point the finger away from the problem and point it towards those who were enforcing to prevent problems. Vatican Press office um, further ignored numerous questions and requests for interviews for further information um, at the time of this. So the problem here and the reason we say it could be a Pope problem is it's a perception thing. Everything is 
is up to public opinion until proven otherwise. And this entire situation may be proven otherwise. But the reason this is becoming a Pope problem and why the coined term Friends of Francis has become a thing is people say that the Pope is at fault for misappointments and then for ignoring valid intel long enough ago to where he could have done something about it. Now, those are two of the points. The third point is the Friends of Francis problem. So the Pope's association with this case also arises from another individual, uh, Jean-Luigi Torzi, which is one of the Italian businessmen who was involved in the London property deal to begin with. Torzi managed to include a last-minute contract provision that gave him control of the property and was able to extort 15 million pounds out of the deal. Francis, Pope Francis, actually approved the contract by Torzi, in which the quote-unquote trick clause was allegedly added. But this is where the Pope's ultimate authority starts to make things a little hazy and creates the Friends of Francis lens and it's starting to threaten his reputation. Comes the question if it's just a coincidence that the Cardinal that was originally charged, Cardinal Angelo, if he had already lost favor with the Pope by the time the investigation got underway? Or was it something deeper? Because others that have been involved, that were more clearly involved, were so close to the Pope that it made them politically untouchable. So while top dog of the group was pinned all those involved in the actual maneuvering of these funds have been left alone thus far a judge has already concluded that many of the Vatican's arguments were unsupported by any credible evidence and actually involved various appalling and egregious non-disclosures and misrepresentations it's going to make this entire trial thing interesting because, like I said, you've got other multiple persons that are involved in the deals, even adding offshore links that have been turned a blind eye by the Pope. Well, what's going to make this trial interesting as things go along is the Vatican does not give defendants the automatic right to call witnesses like you would see in American court or even British Parliament in some cases, it's, it's a completely self-contained system. The magistrates can decide who can testify and who can't. And ultimately that leads um, to the Pope making the decision because in the Vatican, even judges work under the Pope for this purpose and they're basically doing what the Pope is telling them to do and not to do. So that's that's the case in a nutshell. 
Like I said, at the time of this recording, there has been no further information or no updates, no details. But it does look bad on the Pope, the Vatican, and the entire situation. As like any other church, um, mistakes have happened. And uh, there may be a big monetary uh, ordeal going on here. Um, just a matter of time to tell. And none of that is interjected by my personal beliefs. Um, basically read all of that data out of the, the reports. But while we are talking on the source of money, and while we are talking about references from Forbes, why did I mention at the beginning of this episode that things have changed in regards to what it means to be rich in America? So we're going to get off the Vatican. I'm going to come back to the U.S. soil for this one. The new Forbes 400 came out. There are 353 Americans previously on the Forbes 400. Correction. Let me, let me step back and correct that. There are 353 Americans that are billionaires. B-b-b-billionaires. Not millionaires. Billionaires. That can't even make the Forbes 400. We used to be talking about millionaires. You know, in the game show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire came out. That was a big thing. Now, if you got a million bucks, you ain't nothing. The lowest, last ranking billionaire to make the Forbes 400 had a cutoff at $2.9 billion. That is ridiculous. And just from what we have known in the past, neither Oprah Winfrey or Donald Trump made the Forbes 400. That's how much things have changed in the last year. Uh, some due to COVID, yes. Um, some is timing on some other things. So obviously I'm not going to sit here and go down the list and read to you all 400. But there's some interesting people that I find in here and even if you don't know the people you may know the monetary source or the company that they are involved in that made this possible so i just want to read some of them to you now number one should not come as a shock to anybody especially if you are somebody that watches tiktok watches instagram watches facebook reels because there's a song about him, Jeffrey Bezos. So coming in at number one is Jeff Bezos from Amazon. Current score of $201 billion. He actually stepped down as the CEO of Amazon back in July and his net worth actually went up 22 billion from last year. He is the first person on the Forbes 400 worth more than 200 billion dollars. Number 2 is Elon Musk, SpaceX and Tesla. 
His score is $190.5 billion. Number three, Mark Zuckerberg. Everybody in the media age knows this name. That's from Facebook. His worth is $134.5 billion. And right behind him, sitting at number four, is Bill Gates, thanks to Microsoft, at $134 billion. So already you have a little more than $65 billion difference between first place and third place. Carrying on, number five on the Forbes 400 list is Larry Page. His source would be from Google. We all know Google. Valued at $123 billion. And right behind, coming in from Google as well, is Sergey Brin at $118.5 billion. You may not know Larry and Sergey's names, but you obviously know Google. So you've got a discrepancy of $80 billion between first place and fifth place and sixth place. Now carrying on, jump a little bit. Number 11, Jim Walton for Walmart, $68.8 billion. Alice Walton from Walmart, $67.9 billion. Rob Walton from Walmart, $67.6 billion. Obviously there, some of those are gonna be split. Number 14, Phil Knight from Nike, $59.9 billion. Mackenzie Scott, uh, ex-wife of Jeff Bezos, so due to Amazon funding, $58.5 billion. Number 18 is Michael Dell, $50.1 billion. And then we jump down the line a little bit to some interesting ones, just to see how far down the line you go with a couple names you might know. Jack Dorsey from Twitter and Square Payments. Number 53, $14.9 billion. And number 60 is Charles Schwab Investments. We all see those commercials. Coming in at $11.5 billion. You get to number 86, and you finally have Jerry Jones with the Dallas Cowboys. While that's interesting, because whether you like them or not, they're often known as America's team, and he's been known as one of the one of the richest, most powerful men in all sports when it comes to ownership. And he's an 86th place, $190 billion, $190 billion under Amazon. At 124th, you have George Lucas, all you Star Wars fans out there, $7.2 billion. And a little sidestep here um, for you sci-fi Star Wars fans. Um, in the very near future, going to be doing an episode on some 
comparisons um, between Star Wars and Star Trek. So watch out for that. But let's carry on just a little bit further. Netflix at 188 is Reed Hastings with $5.7 billion. Number 247th, Mark Cuban, the Dallas Mavericks, and from Shark Tank, $4.5 billion. Number 340th, Pat Stryker, anybody in the hospital medical world knows that name, due to medical equipment, a lot of hospital beds and wheelchairs and other other facilities. $3.4 billion. And lastly, at 389th, the last 12 are a flat tie. This is John Fisher with Gap at $2.9 billion, which is last place. So if you don't have $2.9 billion, you're not making the Ford's 400 rich people in America anymore. And good luck catching up to Jeff Bezos. Now, little short side story as we approach the end of our time here today. Since we mentioned Amazon and Jeffrey Bezos being number one, what about the anti-Amazon? This is where Etsy comes into play. This is not part of the Forbes 400. This is just an excerpt on comparison. Josh Silverman, who is the CEO since 2016, took 5 million artists and entrepreneurs to transform Etsy into a Wall Street hero. Now, when COVID happened and everybody started losing funds and stocks and sales, Silverman had actually been rushing to cut on Etsy's market spending, marketing spending, to prepare for a slump caused by COVID. However, the latest report actually showed a surge in 2020. One guess, face masks. Everybody needed a face mask. The CDC was saying everybody needed a face mask, so people jumped on the, on the selling bandwagon. The team for Etsy was split, though, because while some people saw that the face mask market was just a little fad, would go away. To others, it offered a chance for Etsy to show off its flexibility and its decentralized seller community. So some realized the potential value in it. As we all know, the supply chains for the world had instantly instantly locked up, shut down. A lot of people, including hospitals and first responders, were having issues getting face masks. Etsy sent massive emails to all its sellers, giving them info on materials and designs needed for masks, gave them a heads up. The marketing team splattered social media with ads for masks on Etsy. Within two weeks, they had 100,000 sellers pushing out masks. And by the end of 2020, 
they had acquired $740 million worth of sales just for masks alone. Etsy's annual revenue increased 111%, as well as its net income up 264%. And in a world where your home was not your office, that obviously, which any of you listening that has done online shopping know this, it drove demand for both unique and handmade products. Looking for stuff different since we couldn't go to the stores. Etsy shares are up 600%. And the company is worth just shy of $30 billion. Etsy did this by empowering a community of crafters versus the Amazon technique of massive drop shifters. Drop shippers. Drop shipping. When Etsy needed a reboost several years ago, back in 2016, Silverman proved to be a great fit to help the company overcome some struggles when it was getting close to determining if it was going to need to sell the company publicly or not. A little bit about Silverman. He got a bachelor's in public policy at Brown back in 1991. Then he worked for New Jersey Senator Bill Bradley, later earned an MBA at Stanford. Got some other things to do, like he turned Skype around in 2008, led five years leading eBay's marketing places, and even ran American Express's credit card business for about five years as well. Definitely in the world of making changes and improvements. But how they did it with Etsy, he encouraged people who were motivated to stay. And those who were skeptical about improvements and changes asked them to leave. He improved the search tools that you'll find on Etsy, helping you find your products more. Heavily invested in customer service. And it is all proven to be a valid strategy because since Silverman took over Etsy, shares have returned some 1800%. Definitely positioned Etsy to benefit from the demand surge due to COVID and personal crafting. Still now, crafters are being pushed to provide transparent timelines improving customer communication a new dashboard if you go on there now will show vendors how they rate for customer service and satisfaction and as silverman said to serve the sellers you need to obsess over the buyer's experience now i'm in no way sponsored by amazon etsy or anybody else i just find it interesting it'll be curious to see over the years as Silverman's interests and changes are made to the way Etsy operates, how it will end up comparing to the world of Amazon. Obviously has a long way to go in market value, but I do believe there is a solid place for unique products and utilizing individual 
production markets. I believe we have an American appreciation of value in that regard. And be interesting to see how that plays out. Something to watch for in the world of the riches. Because while you have trouble in some areas, you have progress in others. Now your final thought, your quote of the day, leave you with a quote by Scott Adams. He says, creativity is allowing yourself to make mistakes. Art is knowing which ones to keep. Plays right into the concept of Etsy and the world of individual crafters. We're humans. We make mistakes. And sometimes that's our best trait. So once again, thank you for giving me about 45 minutes of your time to listen and dive into this conversation with me today. I obviously want to hear from you. If you have heard of any updates about anything that we have discussed in this podcast, send me an email, thehollowdown at gmail.com. Check your listening app. If you're able to send a message directly, feel free to do so. Or you can find me on the YouTube channel, also titled The Hollow Down. Look forward to seeing you in the next episode. See some things that we'll have to talk about next time. And see if we can pique your interest just a little bit more. Thank you again. And until next time, stay safe, fam.